Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Taiwan is the world-class puzzle we are inspecting this hour with some urgency. It's world-class because the thriving, boisterously democratic island off the coast of China lives geopolitically at the junction of giant imperial interests and egos, Chinese and American, both itching for a contest. And still Taiwan is its own identity puzzle on an island ruled for most of the past century by off-islanders. Who is Taiwan after all? The formula for decades now is that Taiwan is a less-than-sovereign part of one China. But it bristles also with heavy arms from America. Could today's Taiwanese stand a fight for independence? Could they stand to be absorbed by the People's Republic on the mainland? And how, at all events, does Taiwan escape the fate of Ukraine? Our conversation begins with up-close Taiwan watchers. Lev Nakban is in the capital, Taipei. First, Shelley Rigger is at Davidson College in North Carolina. I think it's hard to differentiate between the actual urgency of the moment as it is felt in Taiwan and in mainland China and the sort of artificial urgency of the moment that was created over the summer by U.S. politicians deciding that Taiwan should be a domestic political football within the U.S. So suddenly it became the kind of mark of American patriotism and the sort of toughness and willingness to stand up to bad guys around the world to take a trip to Taiwan. So whether ordinary Taiwanese people who feel ignored, alienated, marginalized in the global community were excited to see a U.S. politician, especially one as senior as Nancy Pelosi, coming to Taiwan. The truth is that Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan sparked a marked escalation in the intensity of Chinese military pressure on Taiwan that is not diminishing or it's not diminishing much. To me, when sober-minded leaders in the United States are looking at this issue and recognizing its complexity and sensitivity, things are generally okay. But when it becomes an opportunity for grandstanding in American domestic politics, what is good for Taiwan, what increases Taiwan's security falls away and it becomes a much dicier situation. That's why we think we're in a crisis right now, not because of anything Taiwan did or really very much of what the PRC did, but the PRC's totally predictable response to actions by U.S. politicians that were not motivated by an understanding of the issue, but motivated by domestic political considerations here in the U.S. Left Nachman in Taipei, you're on the ground in Taiwan. Do they feel a political crisis? Do they feel an identity crisis about who they are and which way they're going? People here do not feel that there is any sort of crisis because of the kind of normalcy of PRC military threats that uh, have become kind of daily occurrence in Taiwan. Uh, even at the height of the Chinese military drills, people were going to Starbucks just as much as they would any other day. And especially in the last few years, the quantity of military threats of PRC fighter jets flying into 
Taiwan's air identification zone is normal. My impression is that Taiwanese have learned over many years now what we call strategic ambiguity. Specifically, they've learned how to dream of unification or others of independence, but to live with the reality. So the question of, you know, how do people feel about independence, unification, that's like the number one polled question that every social scientist in Taiwan is constantly paying attention to. And we have a pretty good idea of whereabouts people feel about these questions. Kind of the most important number to remember is that people here overwhelmingly reject unification with the PRC. There is no number that is more obvious and stark than the number of people who reject unification with the PRC today. So the university that I'm at uh, has the longest running public opinion poll on this question in Taiwan. Uh, And recent numbers show that only about 2% of Taiwanese are in favor of unification with the PRC. To put another way, 98% of Taiwanese reject unification. Now, how they actually feel about what they do want for Taiwan is a much more complicated question. You have some people that advocate for the idea of Taiwan becoming a fully recognized state as the Republic of Taiwan, but the vast majority of people advocate for some kind of what we call status quo. Uh, What status quo means is continuing Taiwan's de facto independence as the Republic of China, meaning that it continues to be in this kind of awkward gray zone as the ROC, not because it particularly wants to, but because that's the pragmatic decision that allows Taiwan to exist in peace and continue living as a free democracy. Yeah, but the word game still takes practice. We have one China with two names, the Republic and the People's Republic, and two capitals that both call themselves the real one. Yeah, you know, it might seem complicated, but, you know, we have a North and South Korea and a North and South Carolina and a North and South Dakota. (laughs) It's not that the logics are inescapable. It's just a matter of recognizing that you have two states that, even if there are historical ties, don't fit together in the way that at least one of them thinks they ought to. Granted. And the reality, actually, is incredibly comforting. And the Taiwanese sound a great deal more relaxed about it than a lot of Americans. In 1919, the president of Taiwan, Ma Jingyu, said that the chance of conflict across the strait with PRC was the lowest in 60 years. He said, we will continue to reduce the risks so that we will purchase weapons from the United States, but we will never ask the Americans to fight for Taiwan. That, he said, was absolutely clear. Does that comfort us? That, in fact, this situation works like crazy. What I think Taiwanese politicians are trying to indicate to the U.S. is that, one, they are not going to provoke the PRC to attack Taiwan by claiming de jure independence, right? By saying this separation that has existed between these two states since 1949 is now going to be a divorce. Like, we're serving papers. We want out of this relationship completely. The PRC is, has shown for 70 years that it is willing to exist as in a state of separation, but the divorce, that's not okay with Beijing. So I think what Taiwan leaders try to indicate to the U.S. is we're not going to sue for divorce. We're not going to create this crisis that we all know would be unavoidable if we took that action. So you don't need to plan to fight for Taiwan. What troubles me is that some U.S. politicians have decided that the need for the U.S. to oppose Beijing on all dimensions 
is so overwhelming that using Taiwan or even perhaps encouraging Taiwan to challenge the PRC hmm. is an acceptable thing for the U.S. to do because it would be damaging to Beijing. And so Taiwan ceases to be an issue in U.S. foreign policy in its own right and becomes a kind of sideshow to a larger issue, which is U.S. PRC strategic competition. So when Ma Zhou or Taiwan says, look, you know, we're not going to do this thing that you're worried about. We don't need to because we're already independent, says Taiwan, or we're never going to ask you to fight for us because we're not going to declare independence, says Ma Zhou. What they're saying is, we are not the problem here. Hmm. And please don't make us a problem or don't make problems for us by dragging us into your strategic competition with mainland China. We worry about Taiwan very specially because of the grotesque breakdown of strategic ambiguity around Ukraine. The PRC government's position on Taiwan is that it is completely not analogous to Ukraine because their view is that Taiwan is already part of China and that they have every right to do whatever they want and that they are forbearing from asserting their right in order to avoid harming unnecessarily people that they consider to be their Chinese compatriots. So the strategic ambiguity part in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is that the U.S. has always said, look, we don't care what the outcome is here. You guys can unify. Taiwan can be independent. Just do it peacefully. Just make sure that you both agree to it so that there is no conflict. So that means that the U.S. is saying to Taiwan, you don't provoke the PRC. And it's saying to the PRC, you don't attack Taiwan. And neither side really knows exactly, this is the ambiguity part, exactly what that means. So where are the red lines for the U.S.? The U.S. has never specifically stated those in order to deter both sides from testing the limits. So it's a, it's a quite different scenario from Ukraine, I would say. The commercial intimate connection between Taiwan and mainland China is a big part of the story, it seems to me. And you'd want to count on the commerce to put a break on any battle. Taiwanese companies are used to growing up and manufacturing inside the People's Republic. Taiwan is itself a leading manufacturer in the world of semiconductors for the world, including China. It's a very big deal in global supply chains. Who would want to disrupt that? And how would that restrain Xi Jinping's maximum goals of integration? I'm by no means a semiconductor expert, but I think there's kind of two lines of thinking. The first is that this is one reason why Xi Jinping is not inclined to attack Taiwan, because there are very clear economic reasons to kind of deter this kind of attack. Not just, you know, semiconductors, but Taiwan being an integral part of the global economy means that any sort of conflict with Taiwan would very much affect the rest of the war. However, this idea of what some people have called a silicon shield sort of misses kind of the greater reason why the PRC claims Taiwan, which is that it's an integral part of their, their nationalism 
and kind of the mythos behind their state building project, which means that if she is packed in, is backed into a corner and semiconductors are the one thing stopping him in his way, then there is a very good chance that invasion could still possibly happen, meaning that semiconductors aren't sort of this magical shield under all conditions. How do you tell friends and family in the U.S. Uh, to keep their heads? Uh, I like to tell my mother every day that anytime she sees a warring headline to just remember that it's probably going to be just okay and not to be uh, too particularly panicked. My friends and family regularly check in to make sure that nothing is too bad. uh, And I have to kind of regularly remind them that, you know, just like me and my Jewish family uh, pray for peace in the Middle East on a regular occasion uh, to keep peace in the Taiwan Strait as part of our thoughts. Let's knock on Shelley Rigger. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Coming up, a taste of the talk about Taiwan from a Taiwanese psychologist and a United States senator. This is Open Source. Wen Liu is our sample of the subtleties of Taiwanese thinking about themselves. She's a scholar teacher and an activist based in Taipei. She writes about the mingling of psychology and geopolitics. I asked her what young Taiwan wants. I think we want many things. And first, I think it's important for Taiwan to be seen by the world as Taiwan, because I think for many decades, Taiwan has always been talked about only in relation to China. Um, That has limited a lot of the international spaces that we can get. And for my generations, I think we don't only care about geopolitical questions, Uh, We also care about a lot of different diverse issues. So for me, for instance, the LGBTQ movement was a defining moment of my own activism. It's also a defining moment Mm. for Taiwan's democracy as well. What does the LGBT sensibility require in a society? So we want more than just gender equality. So 2019, we passed the same-sex marriage bill. But there are many loopholes that, you know, activists are still trying to uh, achieve for equality, including transnational marriage, including the right to have children, including the issue that we're talking about is for transgender people to have easier name-changing process, and also just to have more political visibility, and rather than thinking about LGBTQ issue as only in media or in culture, but having actual political rights. Does it take independence for Taiwan to get there? Yes, I would think so. I mean, the LGBTQ movement requires Taiwan to be a democracy. And uh, I will say, actually, since 2015, when the same-sex marriage movement um, got more momentum, that was also the time many international folks realized that Taiwan and China are actually different sovereign countries, that we have you know, really different cultures and different ways of organizing for Taiwan to be seen internationally. I think that was really a defining moment. So a certain independence is required in your view of the future. Yes, absolutely. What can the United States do to help? I emphasize help, not to provoke, not to make itself feel good, but to help your generation. I think presently the most pressing issue is the threats of China's military invasion. And what the U.S. can do is to have, I think, consistent commitment over Taiwan's defense. I think that's the most urgent issue. And the second one is just to continue decades of civil society exchanges, you know, conversations between activist folks 
educational exchange. I think all those things, even though it doesn't sound so pressing, but it builds sort of the long-term relationship and for Americans to understand Taiwan better. When the question is so much harder after, during the Ukraine war, what is worth a war? Who decides? Could Ukraine have waited? Could Russia have gotten over itself? I mean, all these questions look different to me after looking at the Ukraine war. What do you see? I think the Ukraine war, first of all, just made the world see that it's really difficult to negotiate with an authoritarian regime, right? That I think for decades, many people think that if we get China into, you know, the global capitalist market, then someday they will follow the international order. But from you know the UK, Ukraine Russia relationship, this is hasn't been the case. That Russia, similar to China, they hold this revisionist view of history and you know use ethno-nationalist justification to say Taiwan has always been part of China, which is completely untrue, right? The current PRC regime has never ruled Taiwan, you know, ever before. So it makes the questions of how a small and marginalized country need to think seriously about building allies and building its defense, I think, much more urgent. When What's the difference between your feeling and your parents? What's the identity change in two generations that are working on this in Taiwan? Yes, I think the difference is actually quite drastic. So my parents, they're both local Taiwanese folk who have been here for centuries, but they grew up under the martial law, and, you know, they were taught the KMT's Chinese education. So they were taught to have this romantic nostalgia or feeling for the Chinese empire, to think about the 5,000 years of histories, to think about the Yellow River, uh, to think about all the mountains and, you know, great sceneries that Taiwan's a small islands that don't have. So I think for many, many years, right, they were uh, taught to desire that and to join sort of the KMT's program of taking back uh, mainland China as part of their history. And my dad would always tell me that they feel the KMT owed them an apology, right, that for decades that they've been indoctrinated by this anti-communist ideas. And for all of a sudden that KMT stopped wanting to fight the CCP anymore. So it was, very, I think, very confusing. And for my generation, I think, because we grew up in, um, you know, a different government with democratic um, elections, and we have a different curriculum that really center on um, Taiwanese identity and Taiwanese histories uh, from this island, rather than tracing back to this 5,000 years of, um, you know, the Chinese glory, that for us, it was really natural to think of ourselves from the standpoint of Taiwan. And it's also very natural for mm. us to think about China as a neighboring country, uh, rather than somehow because we speak Chinese and we're magically, you know, share the same desires, same identity, same ideology. So I would say that's the most drastic difference. That's a fascinating difference. Your parents want an apology from Chiang Kai-shek, in effect, for not winning the Civil (laughs) War in the 1940s. But you're ready to live the way we live with Canada, say. Common language, a lot of interesting links in history, but they're Canada, we're U.S. Yes, perfectly put. Canada and the U.S. (laughs) Well, Liu, it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christopher. It was nice talking to you.
Senator Ed Markey is a Democrat from Massachusetts, chairman of the East Asia and Pacific Subcommittee of the Foreign Relations Committee. I told him we were looking for an independent voice on China policy in official Washington. Listeners, you be the judge of whether we found one. Senator Ed Markey, you visited Taiwan late in the summer, just after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I want to ask you first, though, we'll get to Taiwan. I want to ask you first about what feels like an October cold snap in U.S.-China relations just in the last 10 days, not to do with the party congress underway in Beijing or the chronic nerves around Taiwan. What's new and different is coming out of the Biden White House, a warning, in effect, that something very like a war is on with China over computer chips, not just a commercial or a scientific contest either, but a race for all the marbles. It's to decide who dominates the planet intellectually, strategically, militarily, maybe for all time, with the ultimate semiconductors in artificial intelligence, in the guidance systems of weapons too. Can this be? Well, you know, we've known for some time that we have been over-reliant on foreign sources for access to semiconductors in the United States. And the steps taken by the Biden administration simply highlight how vital these chips are to American competitors. We just have to continue to ensure that we have diversified sources for semiconductors and that we continue to increase domestic capacity. At the same time, we also see how China is seeking to use advanced technology in order to gain additional military and private sector advances in their country. And moving forward, the United States and our allies have to construct a careful balance with the Chinese to ensure that they don't develop a technological superiority that then makes it possible for them to be able to militarily or economically threaten the rest of the world. So there's a balance that has to be struck, and I think we're moving towards the correct balance. I'm still trying to get my head around what feels like a shredding of American-China policy over the last 50 years. Tom Friedman in the New York Times couldn't hide his shock at this development under a banner headline that said, we are suddenly taking on China and Russia at once. And you remember, Grandma always told you, don't get into a war or anything like it with Russia and China at once. But overnight, we've got export restrictions on our most advanced technologies. People speak of decoupling the world's biggest economies, ours and China's. Is this happening? Is this real? With China, there are actions which they have been engaging in that require a response from the West that ultimately is consistent with U.S. Uh, values. So I think that we want to avoid a military conflict with China, but we also don't want to in any way avoid the reality that we can take the steps to address China uh, without getting into a cold war with China while we're being realistic about what their national security and their economic goals are. That's a big assignment, but just consider the Ukraine context again. People We're beginning to think that China was finally getting impatient with Russia's war in Ukraine because of the inflation everywhere, oil prices especially, and many other reasons. But how does that work with our computer chip war with China in the picture of trying to court China with respect to Ukraine? 
I mean, President Biden's new line last week was that Russia is declining, if not fallen power. China is problem number one, long term. Is this the way giant turns in policy and friendship and purpose get announced in a computer chip war? Well, there are right now for United States companies, many strengths that come when they want to work inside of China and working with Chinese companies. And I think we have a very good reason to be wary of Chinese government intentions. And I think the Biden administration from day one has been focused on bringing manufacturing home and decreasing our reliance on foreign supply chains, which have already been hobbled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. And that's consistent with the Biden administration's focus, putting Americans to work in good paying union jobs, building the technology leading to a 21st century economy here at home and increasing United States domestic supply chain and manufacturing capability is protecting our national security. I'm still hearing a big change, a turn. I wonder who is doing our thinking for us and since when and where does it go from here? A new hostility toward China, out front. They're the enemy long-term of this country. I don't know that we've ever said that before. No one wants to see a trade war with China. That's not good for anyone. And I think the Biden administration is committed to ramping up domestic manufacturing and protecting national security. And it's why Congress passed the CHIPS Act to make sure the United States does not have to rely on foreign manufacturing for these critical goods and that we become more realistic about how we outsourced our economy and our national security interests overseas. And it's time for us to reclaim them so that we have the technological capacity here in order to protect our own country. Let me narrow it. You've been a grassroots hero in climate change politics. I'm sure you've heard the line that in coming years, we can either fight China or we can fight climate change. I'm wondering why aren't our technology giants, and China's for that matter, saving the planet together? What is the trade-off in your attention to the climate and to China? I think that you're putting your finger right on it. The two largest emitters on the planet are the United States and China. We're not in a cold war with China, but every nation on Earth is in a collective war against climate change for our very survival. And we must seek areas of mutual cooperation, not mutual annihilation on the existential threat to our well-being that climate change poses. So it's absolutely critical that we, in Egypt, in November, do everything we can in order to partner with the Chinese. It's in their interest as well as our interest. And my fear is that President Xi might not want to cooperate, but I think it's important for the rest of the world to make it very clear that we need China at the table and we need them as a technological giant to be deploying the technologies that avoid the deployment of more fossil fuel burning facilities. For example, China last year and this year announced that they were going to be building more coal burning plants. And that's completely inconsistent Hmm. uh, with the long-term goals, which we have to having United States and China partner. Let me ask, do you find yourself torn between being friendly enough to China on 
climate cooperation and unfriendly enough on all this other agenda. As President Kennedy used to say, because you can't make progress on every front doesn't mean that you can't make progress on any front. So we have to take climate. We have to be uh, realistic about the common threat which it poses. The reality is, is that the United States had a big credibility problem. You cannot preach temperance from a bar stool. You cannot tell the rest of the world to reduce their greenhouse gases while we were not putting in place the policies for wind and solar, all electric vehicles, battery storage technologies, et cetera, to reduce our greenhouse gases. That's why the Inflation Reduction Act, or to put it another way, the largest climate bill ever passed by any country in world history was so important to get President Biden to sign that bill in August. And so now we are going to Egypt to the climate summit in November with some credibility. And we can put that right down there. We can, John Kerry's got real credibility now to say to the Chinese that they must now put on in place policies that similarly have high goals for reduction of greenhouse gas. Different matter, Senator Markey. Speak of the Taiwan Policy Act that looks to be rushing through Congress this year. You voted against it in committee. It's the handiwork of Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, a Democrat who's seen as hawkish on China. As I understand it, the act would have us treat Taiwan as a non-NATO ally of the U.S. It assumes more heavy military aid to Taiwan. When you were in Taiwan, you frowned on militarizing the conversation around Taiwan. You've identified yourself with One China, the formula that has encompassed both Taiwan and China, and strategic ambiguity over 50 years. What is the chance of beating back the Taiwan Policy Act? How strongly do you feel about it? That's a great question, you know, because for more than 40 years, the United States-Taiwan relationship has been guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, which, by the way, in 1979, I voted for as a young member of Congress. The Relations Act, not to be confused with the Policy Act this year. That's right. The Taiwan Relations Act of 1979 has been our policy, and it has benefited from the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity. And we have a moral obligation to do everything we can to prevent an unnecessary conflict. So now there has been a piece of legislation, as you say, called the Taiwan Policy Act, a new bill to strengthen the long-term self-defense and stability of Taiwan. But I had and continue to have serious concerns about provisions that, in my view, would undermine strategic ambiguity, undermine the U.S. one-China policy, and threaten to destabilize the region. For that reason, I voted no on passage in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, on which I serve, and I'm going to continue to work with my colleagues and the Biden administration to ensure that U.S. support for Taiwan is robust. But I'm working with other committee members to modify the language that actually passed out of the committee. Is there a chance of detoxifying that bill in your view? Yes. I'm very hopeful that we can work to find language that uh, continues our one China policy, continues our policy of uh, strategic ambiguity. Otherwise, I am concerned that it could exacerbate uh, additional destabilization in the region. Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, chairman of the East Asia and Pacific Subcommittee of the Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you very much. We should do this more often, Senator. Christopher, I love talking to you. You're great, and your show is great. Thank you. 
coming up toward a general theory of a global unhappiness. This is Open Source. Jake Werner is a China scholar from the University of Chicago. He's a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a co-founder of Justice is Global, a project aimed at rethinking the global economy. I asked him to square up what we've been hearing so far this hour. I'm hearing a non-emergency in Taiwan, as Taiwanese people feel it, but also a split agenda in the mind of Senator Ed Markey. He's gung-ho for U.S.-China cooperation, a drive together to deal with climate change. At the same time, he's wary about China as a trading partner and a rising power. How did we get here? How do you explain Joe Biden's sudden turn, as I read it, as the New York Times read it, toward fundamental eternal hostility with China? They're the enemy, almost dismissing Russia, and only one of those great powers can prevail. If they get to the killer app, semiconductor technology, we're cooked, and vice versa. That sounded, if not hysterical, like a, a major turn. Where's that coming from? And why? Why now? Just when China was getting fed up with Russia's war in Ukraine. I absolutely 100% agree with Senator Markey's priority on the climate issue. This is by far the biggest issue facing the United States, facing humanity. What's going on here, though, we need to recognize that the conversation in D.C., to a certain extent, I think the people engaged in these decisions are fooling themselves about what the outcomes are going to be. These export controls are targeted at the most high-end, cutting-edge semiconductors and technology for use in supercomputers. So the administration is not, has not imposed a blanket ban on all semiconductors, but it has cut off the highest technology ones that are for use in in particular in artificial intelligence and, and other so-called technologies of the future. And the idea, I think, coming from the administration, and I think I, I heard something of this from Senator Markey as well, we're not trying to cripple the Chinese economy. We're just trying to make sure that we maintain a lead in the highest technology parts of the economy. But unfortunately, this is going to be read very differently. Many people on the, on the American side imagine they're demonstrating some restraint on this. People on the Chinese side will read this as an existential threat to their future in the global economy. The Biden administration framed the export controls as strictly about limiting China's military potential. But in fact, there is a very wide application for these technologies within the very top of the technology sector. It's a small space, but it's strategically essential space, not just for the military, but but for the future of the entire Chinese economy and potentially also for the global economy, because innovation that happens in China is potentially of use by other people as well, just as innovation in the United States can be used by other people. And so this threatens the Chinese leadership's hopes and plans for the future, because just like the United States, to keep their economy growing, to create good jobs and strong profits for their people and for their businesses, they absolutely have to compete at the top of the technology ladder. And the Biden administration is essentially saying, no, we're not going to permit that. We're only going to permit ourselves and people that we like to compete in these high-value, strategically important sectors. That is going to be understood by China as, number one, unfair, but maybe more importantly, as a signal of fundamental hostility to the future of China and the Chinese people. Fundamental hostility toward China seems to be the posture that Joe Biden wants in these off-year elections, 
coming up in a couple of weeks now. Explain that appeal to American voters. I think there is an appeal. Um, Certainly, the Biden administration is worried about the politics, very concerned that if they're not seen to be tough on China, that the Republicans will beat them up and that will have a real cost. I am a little bit skeptical of this. Some of the research that I've been involved in shows that there is general kind of distrust in the United States about China, but it's a fairly shallow sentiment. If you talk to people for a little bit, they will move off of that. So the deep antipathy is not deeply rooted yet in the population as a whole. Uh, I think that's different in the political elite and in Washington, D.C. There seems to be now insistence that U.S. and China cannot thrive together, that it's going to have to be one or the other. But I think part of the dynamics here is that there is a broad set of people who, for very different reasons, has come to see China as important to their grievances and their sense that things are going in the wrong direction. This extends from everyone from national security planners, those worried about the military position of the United States in the world, uh, organized labor, worried about Chinese jobs competition, um, American businesses that have complaints about China demanding access to American intellectual property in exchange for access to the China market, and the increasingly intense competition that Chinese companies pose to American companies. And then, of course, very importantly, China is also sort of a symbol of the reversal of respect for human rights and the progress of democracy that uh, had seemed inexorable for a long time. And then over the last 10 years has really eroded around the world in the United States, in China also, and around the world. In my own analysis, none of these issues are fundamentally caused by China, but China is implicated in all of them. And so it can become sort of a, a symbol of everything that's going wrong for America and for our interests and for our values. Hmm. And that allows a very diverse group of people to sort of get on board behind a shared agenda, whether, whether they really care about China or not, to use antipathy to China to advance their agenda. I think that's an important part of the dynamic in D.C., that everyone wants to sort of wrap up their priorities in the idea that it's going to make us stronger against China. And that helps to sort of create a self-reinforcing politics where all politicians feel like they have to be tough on China if they want to be politically viable. That's a fascinating sort of turn of the, of the kaleidoscope that has put China in the bullseye. I mean, do you want to take it apart? What's fair? What's not fair? What is China doing? What is China really wanting in this world? Can you correct the picture? I would place China not as sort of the the cause of all these problems, but as part of a global transformation that we've been experiencing over the last 15 years. Ever since the 2008 global financial crisis, the dominant system of free market globalization seemed to collapse, and then everyone tried to put it back together, but it just wasn't functioning the same anymore. Global growth was much lower, trade stagnated, foreign investment never recovered to the heights that it had reached before. And all of that was combined with increasing sense of vulnerability and fears and anxieties amongst policymakers in all countries, including China. But for our purposes here, particularly in the United States, the the economy very stubbornly refused to recover throughout the Obama years, very, very slowly came back to where it was before 2008. And that led to a lot of sensitivity about the kind of economic practices that China was pursuing. It also led to a sense that previously, American policymakers has felt like there was enough room for both China and the United States in the global system. And increasingly now, American leaders have drawn the conclusion that there's not enough room, in part because there's just not very much growth to be had. And so if we want to have enough profits and enough growth and enough jobs to sustain American prosperity, that's going to come at the expense of other countries. 
um, in particular for talking about these high value sectors at the very top of the economy. American policymakers see these sectors as essential to the prosperity of the United States. And they also see the, the sluggish growth in the global economy and the, the really cutthroat competition that Chinese businesses pose to American businesses. And they conclude, we're just going to have to kneecap China if we want to sustain prosperity in the United States. So I trace the now very clear deterioration in U.S.-China relationship back to this, this sort of long emergence of anxieties about the future, the sense that everything is going wrong. And, and you know, I would also connect the reversals around values, democracy and human rights, to these same events. Because a lot of people have felt their security, their individual security, the security of their community has been eroded by the increasing volatility of, of the global market and by the increasing inequality that free market globalization created. And a very natural kind of response to that has been to, to just reverse the, the values of interconnectedness and cosmopolitanism and interdependence that globalization claimed for itself and just reverse those to nationalism and communalism of various sorts. We see this in the United States very clearly. Uh, we also see this in China very clearly. You see it clearly. Point out the symptoms. So, I mean, I think the rise of, of a Trump style of politics is the expression of this. And this, this involves a transformation of the Republican Party from being a free market oriented sort of internationalist believing in kind of like universal abstract equality. That was the claim to values and positions of the Republican Party. And, and Trump has really reversed all of that, right? Has completely turned against free trade. The Republican Party now is largely hostile to free trade and has embraced a role for the state in the economy and in society in order to make the United States strong against foreigners, right? And this can target immigrants, it can target Muslims, and it targets China. So this is all part of a, a sort of anti-foreign package. And this is not at all unique to the United States. We see very similar developments in Indian politics, in Brazilian politics, in Polish politics. This is happening in, in Turkey, in the Philippines. It's happening around the world. And we also see it in China. So a lot of the, the, the rise for the increasingly repressive and nationalist politics that so many people are rightly troubled by I don't interpret this as sort of something particular to China. This is part of a global trend. And if we want to reverse that, and I think we should, we need to not deepen the sources of nationalism and authoritarianism by, by unleashing great power conflict. We need to start addressing these deeper causes. And ultimately, those can only be addressed through cooperation between the great powers. Jake Werner, that's a marvelous analytical piece-by-piece -piece depiction of a mood that politicians pick up intuitively and somehow sense. Yeah. Donald Trump is an extreme case, but Joe Biden seems to be following the same instinctive move toward confrontation with what's a convenient target, China. My question is, where does this lead? What is the next step? How long is this hostility good for or bad for? Where do we go from here? I don't want to say it feels like warmongering, but it feels like the run-up and the preparation for something worse. Yes, I agree with that. The increasing frequency of war scares around Taiwan in particular registers this. My own kind of read of the deterioration of the situation around Taiwan is that it's ultimately the result of the deterioration in the U.S.-China relationship and the sense that if only one or the other can succeed, then, then we're going to have to have a confrontation around this sort of vital interest sooner or later. And just as the relationship gets worse and worse, then that dynamic is strengthened on both sides. The distrust erodes further, the preparation for war intensifies, and you get a vicious cycle of escalation. Taiwan is the most dangerous potential flashpoint 
But because leaders on both sides see a zero-sum conflict in which they must frustrate the desires of the other side in order for their own country to succeed and prosper, for that reason, then, issues around the world are becoming implicated in this, including climate change. Because of the frictions around Taiwan, now China has suspended the climate dialogue, which wasn't producing a whole lot because of how bad relationship already was. Um, But it is that lifeline that we need to encourage and, and nourish. Certainly, it's distracting us from more important things. Um, it's diverting resources towards conflict rather than towards the real threats to humanity. But it, it also is, I am, I'm afraid, is building towards mm. very serious international violence. Where would you start unbuilding it? But also, how would you re-explain, reintroduce what China is actually up to? Are they up to world domination? No, our thinking in the United States about China often has a lot more to do with our own fears and anxieties than it has to do with any clear assessment of what's going on in China. As I said, China has become, the Chinese leadership, particularly under Xi Jinping, has become more nationalistic, has become more repressive and authoritarian. This is indisputable. But still, China is very cautious, particularly when you compare with something like what has happened with Russia, Russian politics under Putin over the last 10 years. That's another example of kind of the the worsening uh, nationalism and authoritarianism. But the Russian leadership is not cautious. China is extremely cautious still. They feel like, I think this is, has not been very constructive dynamic at all, but China always feels like it has to respond to what it considers as provocations around Taiwan or whatever. That sort of feeds this terrible cycle. But the responses have been calibrated. They have been very precise. So when the United States sails an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Strait, then China will send its planes to infringe the so-called exclusive economic zone uh, of uh, the Taiwan claims. This is not leading towards invasion unless the issue is forced, unless China concludes that, for example, that Taiwan is now lost to it unless it invades, then it's not going to pursue that. Taiwan is is by far the most important security issue for the Chinese leadership. Is it about security or about morale and pride? It's about both. These are inseparable. Just the way that nationalism constructs interests, the political leadership believes in the importance of Taiwan for China's future. The leadership is also afraid of popular opinion in China if they should be inadequately nationalist, inadequately tough in their defense of what is universally regarded, virtually universally regarded in China as an important security interest, an important sort of symbol of national pride and national renewal. These nationalist sentiments have gotten much worse and they restrict what their leadership feels like it can do in addition to shaping what the leadership wants to do. Jake, I'm struck that in this very, very tense moment, do we have a guiding spirit outside the administration For China policy, it's hard to think of anybody in the Congress. Ed Markey could be one in wanting to cooperate profoundly on climate change, but even he doesn't really criticize the Biden mentality on China. Where's a saner policy advocate? There are people out there who are registering the problems, who want to push American policy away from the current very destructive course, but they're few and far between. Right now, D.C. has sort of been taken over by one of these moments when everyone moves in one direction. And for that reason, everyone feels like they have to move in that direction. It's the, you know, the origin of groupthink and the, and the sense that uh, if I don't do it, then I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. But I think what's important is that there are a number of different groups and interests in the United States that are leery of this kind of confrontation. They're not yet well organized. They haven't yet articulated how intense their concerns are. They haven't created a political cost for pursuing great power conflict, but there are interests. And just to suggest a few, certainly I think climate groups understand what a danger 
great power conflict would be to, to the climate agenda, both in the United States and globally. There has also been a really alarming increase of anti-Asian racism, um, in particular violent uh, attacks on, uh, just on the street against Asians and Asian Americans in the United States that has correlated with the increasing tensions between between the U.S. and China. So there are a number of Asian American groups that have been demanding a more constructive relationship with China. There are certainly interests in, I think, in both labor and business that are worried about the direction things are going. But right now, the political environment is so hostile to a more balanced relationship with China that a lot of these voices have fallen silent. It's up to those of us who are active on these issues, who are doing the research around a more constructive policy, and also trying to figure out what the politics could look like that could move things in a different direction. It's up to those of us doing this work to organize these groups and help them show to political leaders that it's not just monolithic anti-China feeling out there in the country. The possibility for a constructive relationship with China to reform the global economy, to work on these absolutely essential issues like climate change, like pandemic preparedness, there is so much that China has, has actually asked the United States to work on that is not happening because of the sense, the fear, that working with China will make our enemy stronger. I think the outcome is rather going to be to turn China into a bitter enemy that is going to make us weaker on everything that we want to accomplish in the world. Jay Corner, thank you so much for your work, your study, your writing, and for sharing it with us. Very happy to be on the show. Thank you, Christopher. Jake Werner is a research fellow with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thanks also to Wen Liu, Lev Nachman, Shelley Rigger, and Senator Ed Markey. You've just heard a new installment of In Search of Monsters, continuing our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org or at their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. And look for an additional short conversation there and on our own site that I'll be having in Quincy World every week of this series. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. <laughs>